Hey, you guys. If launching a podcast isn't enough, I also recently launched a new e-commerce website called Unique Black Gifts. The concept is, every month, I will post new items unique to the market. Check it out, uniqueblackgifts.com. And if you use the discount code FLIPPIN, you will receive 25% off of all purchases. That's uniqueblackgifts.com. Welcome to Flipping the Script, a podcast for women of color by women of color, helping you to not just navigate your way through change, but to embrace it. I am your host, Michelle Words. Today, we have Valerie Salisbury Edmonds. Val is a fellow expat and corporate executive who will be breaking down the four cycles we go through in life. Val has managed to tackle it all, career, family, multiple published books, and shares her knowledge and experience with the next generation. You'll enjoy what she has to say. Let's get to it. I am not where you wanna be. Trying to navigate life, but it's hard to see, yeah. I am struggling to make a change. We're coming to me, and now is the perfect chance. With flipping the scripts, so you'll find your way to help you embrace any trials you face. With flipping the script, conquer every day. We're helping you find your happy place. Hello. I am pleased to bring to you my guest today, a person I am proud to call my friend, Valerie Salisbury Edmonds. Val is a global HR consultant and leadership coach. Over the last 30 years, she has had a variety of HR assignments across different divisions within ExxonMobil Corporation. She has worked primarily as a global HR business partner with change management, organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and recruiting and training expertise. Her current assignment to Qatar Petroleum in Doha allows her to leverage her experience by consulting on talent management processes. She was recently appointed head of professional development within their HR capital division. In this role, Val is responsible for establishing processes and procedures to improve the technical capabilities of over 5,000 professional staff. Valerie is from Tennessee and earned her bachelor's degree in business administration at the University of Memphis, and her MBA is from Howard University. Valerie received her certification as a leadership coach at Georgetown University in 2012 and she is currently pursuing her PhD in leadership at Piedmont International University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Go girl. In coaching practice, her coaching practice is called Masterful You, and she seeks to help aspiring leaders in their quest to define success and create a life of well-being, wisdom, and purpose. She is a published author, previously publishing three books, The Amazing Single Mom, Star, and I'm Every Woman. She has also been a contributing author for two books, Breaking the Concrete Ceiling, The Future is Female, and The Professional Woman, Leadership, Courage, and Confidence. 
Val currently lives in Doha, Qatar with her husband, Rick, and they love to travel and experience different cultures. They have a blended family of five adult children who live in the USA. Val is an active member of the AKA sorority and on the board of Doha chapter of the International Coaching Federation. Wow. Welcome, Val. Oh, thanks, Michelle. <laughs> Sorry for the long bio. <laughs> hey, you've done it all. You need to take the credit for it. So, yeah, absolutely. Very glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for being here. Today, Val is going to be talking to us about her new book called The 9% Black Women Leaders Tell It Like It Is. The 9%, yes. And she's going to be talking to us about transforming from striving to thriving, which is what we all want to do. So Val and I actually met when we were both living in Doha, Qatar. So currently I live in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, but I lived in Doha for four years. And uh, Val, when did you guys move to Doha? I came in January 2015, right after you got there, and I'm still there. So it's been six years. That's what I thought. You got there right after I did, because I know we met pretty soon um, after I arrived there. So, yes, and I can also vouch for the fact that Val and Rick are both avid travelers because we actually have run into each other in the airport. <laughs> in another in country. another country. Val, where were we? Where was that when we were in um, Amsterdam? Uh, we were in Amsterdam. It was yeah. Amsterdam. We didn't know each other were going to be there. We just ran into each other in the airport. That's when you know you're a global traveler, when you meet people in foreign Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So your bio tells us about your professional career. Tell us more about your journey and how you became an author also. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I am married to Rick, but it is my second marriage. Uh, I was married before and had two beautiful children uh, out of that union. I was married for 13 years. And around my 40th year, uh, we got divorced. And a lot of it was around the challenges of managing a dual career and how a corporate role for me particularly had an impact on my personal life. That was my first opportunity to kind of just kind of reevaluate and flip the script, if you will. So I was a single mom for about 10 years, raising those two kids and then relocated and to Virginia. And eventually found current husband and we both kind of enjoyed traveling like a lot of the same things so uh, we've been married now for six years seven years excuse me got married in 2013 yeah so on on the personal side I have um, always been very active in the community active in the church I love to read and I love to write have been a member of lots of organizations Alpha Kappa Alpha Jack and Jill, America, but other ones as well. Houston Habitat. I've always found myself busy because I like giving back, I like serving others. Fabulous. So was moving to Doha your first uh, international living experience? It was. It was. Now, I had moved around in the U.S. Uh, with my job several times. I started in New Jersey. Of course, I, I was in D.C. With going to Howard. 
but I relocated to Houston, Virginia, back to Dallas, back to Texas, went to Dallas, back to Virginia, then uh, back to Houston. So I've moved around in the States, but going overseas was a huge opportunity, if you will, for both me and my family. Of course. So what led to you making the decision to move abroad? Well, um, it was just kind of being in the right place at the right time. I had spent a lot of time in my on the job trying to reestablish my brand, my personal brand, and had a lot of ups and downs in my career and really focused in my 40s on letting people know what my skills were. And it's funny because when I got the opportunity, I had never worked in uh, organizational effectiveness, which is a, a field within HR, but I had established myself as that being one of my key skills, managing change, helping organizations achieve their goals, going through major transitions and transformations. And so this job opportunity came up in Qatar and they said they wanted somebody with those types of skills, leading transformation change projects. And my boss at the time, I had just gotten into a new job and she said the job application sounded just like me and everybody in the room on the uh, professional development committee in ExxonMobil that manages careers. They was like, oh, that sounds just like Val. And so they picked me based on my reputation. And I interviewed for the job in Qatar because it wasn't with ExxonMobil. It was with one of our partners. And the rest is history. It was a good fit. Although I will say that I, I did recognize the impact on my family and so spent a lot of time talking before I accepted it with my husband and my son at the time was going into, he was ending his 10th grade year and we had just moved from Virginia. So I wanted to make sure that he was going to be comfortable with the move, but uh, we all made the move and I think every one of us felt like it was the best decision we made. That's what I was going to ask you is, was it a hard sell for them? Uh, Not so much for Rick. He was retired and, you know, he, although he had never lived overseas, I think he was open to the adventure. My son, it was a little bit tougher decision, um, but, you know, I left it up to him. Uh, He said he prayed about it and he said he didn't want to miss out on this opportunity to you know, kind of learn and, and live in another part of the world because he was going to miss something like marching band, which I think was the main thing that he was giving <laughs> up. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, you know, the, the the education he felt very comfortable with, and he was good with meeting people. So yeah, it seems like thing. he made a very nice. You know, he got comfortable there. He made a nice transition, from what I can tell, while he was there. He seemed to be really active while he was there in different activities, probably that he wouldn't have been involved in while he was in the States. Yeah, well, you know, I think because we had moved so much in the States, we all had, you know, pretty good strategies for how to build a community as soon as you get someplace. And so the way he did it was to get active and he joined, he took on volleyball, which he had never played in the States, but it was an opportunity for him to meet people early on in the in his first year. And so he had a group of friends. I think they were his crew is what he called them. And so that really helped. It helped him transition and have a community. Good. And, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I was the same way. I moved a lot within the United States. And so 
moving and adapting to learning a new area and meeting new people wasn't new to me. Doha was my first country abroad as well. Mm -hmm. And so that does make a difference when you already are used to transitioning and being the new person, then moving to a new country. Of course, there's going to be a cultural difference and maybe culture shock, but you already know what you need to do in order to, like you said, find your tribe, which was the first thing I tried to do when I moved to Doha. And then, you know, you have to pretty much feel comfortable with yourself in order to make those types of changes as well. Exactly. Exactly. But I am a huge proponent. You know, I will be throughout the course of this podcast pushing for people to go outside of their comfort zone and move into a if nothing else, to a new state. But definitely, if if anybody ever has the opportunity to move abroad, I say take it. Yeah, I think that's a big part of, you know, learning to thrive. You know, you have to be able to let people see your passion and, and live on purpose. And sometimes that means taking risks. Going to Doha was a risk, you know. It was a personal risk, leaving friends and family. But I think it pays off when you are willing to stretch yourself. Absolutely. And plus, you know, you're able when you move to a new community, nobody knows you. So you're able to recreate, reinvent yourself. Plus, you find out a lot about yourself during that time as well. And so it definitely was a huge growth opportunity for me as well. I agree with you with that one. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you asked me, how did I become an author? Yes. So when I was going through a divorce, writing was really cathartic. I was able to kind of, like a testimony, share my story, and it was a way of healing. Uh, And I've always liked to read, and so I I felt like we all have a story to tell. So I started writing when I first got to Doha. I found like the work-life balance in Qatar was so much better than anything I had experienced. I would get home at three o'clock and wouldn't know what to do with myself because I'd never had that much time on my hands. And so I just threw myself into writing. That was something I'd always wanted to do. I set a goal to publish a book before the end of the year. When I got there in 2015, January, published my first book by December. I just self-published and then got on a roll. I, I liked writing short stories because I liked feeling that sense of accomplishment, which is uh, easier with a short story than a long novel. So I, the next book was a set of short stories, and they were based on women in the Bible. But I've always wanted to also help women just kind of learn from the experiences that I had. And so writing was a way for me to minister and and serve other women. Yes, definitely. Because that's one of the advantages of aging is that we have that wisdom and that it is a responsibility for us to be able to share that wisdom then with younger generations. Right. I always was one growing up that I would learn from other people's mistakes. Yes. (laughs) That always. (laughs) Some people don't learn from their own mistakes or others, but I, I would watch others and I would learn from others' mistakes. So definitely, if we can help somebody to do that, then that's our charge. So now, your new book, The 9%, is a compilation, which you contributed, yes, with other ladies. So tell us about that book. So this was a, a brainchild of mine at the beginning of the COVID crisis, you know, found ourselves 
more time on our hands because we were all working from home and quarantined. And I had been talking to quite a few women in my circle, my tribe in Doha, and we just kind of talked about sharing stories, sharing advice. And I had a lot of professional women there and said, oh, it'd be nice if we could collaborate on a project like this. And so I just kind of reached out to quite a few women leaders that I knew. I have a pretty large professional uh, network and asked them if they would like to contribute. And uh, I was looking for somewhere between 10 and 15. And I got 12 other ladies to participate with me. And it was really about an opportunity to speak to the way I presented it. Speak to your younger self. What do you wish somebody had told you? Not necessarily when you started out, you know, as a new hire with your career, but right before you get into that, when you get into that first leadership position, you don't really know what's ahead because you've gotten so far just based on your skills and, you know, just doing a good job. But being a leader in organizations, it's a different animal and the skills that you need are, are a little bit different and the challenges that you face will be different. So I wanted to kind of help prepare younger future generations of leaders by sharing stories. So women from different fields. So it's not just people in corporate America, but people in education, people in the military, people in uh, medicine, uh, social services, different perspectives on how to get ahead as a, a black woman leader. Um, because as a minority and as a woman, you deal with both conscious and unconscious bias all the time. And so, you know, it's real, a lot of stuff about intersectionality right now. And that's about kind of overlapping discrimination. You're getting it from both sides. And so this is really not necessarily saying that the 9% is good or bad. It just is. And validates that we are there. Black women are there. We're in leadership positions. We're doing things. We're making things happen. And so just a a rallying call to those who are part of the 9%, but also uh, messages to future uh, women, Black women. Absolutely. And this podcast is about being open and raw, which I really appreciated that you are in your books and you share the ups, the downs, the good and the bad, because you don't want to sugarcoat anything for anyone. We have to have some realistic expectations. So why did you think it was important to be so transparent in your books? I, I heard this sermon once, people see your glory, but they don't know your story. And I think people, as you say, can learn from our experiences and it doesn't take away my accomplishments for me to share my my challenges, the things that, you know, I did wrong, the mistakes I made, the things that, you know, I didn't know. Uh, I think that helps people. I wish somebody had been more direct with me. People try to sugarcoat things and they worry about their ego. And it's just time out for worrying about trying to look good. Right. <laughs> I think the real you is going to show up no matter what, even if you try to cover it up. So and that's where the learning really takes place. In exactly. Those mistakes. Exactly. Yes. So your chapter in the book is titled From Striving to Thriving. And I love that title. <laughs> so in that Thanks. chapter, you talk about the four stages or seasons that we might move through in our lives and in our careers. 
arriving, yeah. striving, thriving, and abiding. So break down those for us. Oh, I plan to write a whole book on this, but it's my theory, my philosophy on life is that, you know, it, it, we go through these seasons and in our 20s, you know, we're really just learning. We're we're arriving into adulthood. We have, you know, eyes wide open, hungry. Uh, we're taking it all in and we don't know what we don't know. So we're on a steep learning curve in our 20s. I, in my 20s, like a lot of people in my 20s, think you know it all. Of course. Uh, you know, you get your degree and you think you're so smart. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you get into, as I did, get into corporate America and you realize how big the world is and how much you don't know. But, and that's okay. I think recognizing that we're, anytime we join a new company, get a new job, whatever, we're in an arriving stage. We're in a learning stage. And that's okay. But at some point, once you get your legs solid up under you, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to get into a stride, you know, we work really hard. And in my 30s, I, the one word that just kind of stands out for me is I was just tired. I was working so hard. I was putting in long hours. I was trying to please everybody, trying to get ahead. And so, you know, those striving years can wear you out. You don't, you're really, and that's why there were so many books and I was looking for help on how to find balance. And, you know, work-life balance was a really big concern in my thirties. But when you find yourself on that rat race, on that wheel, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what that stage in life is about. You know, I was having kids and trying to manage a family and a new, buying a house and, you know, I had a dog. I was like, just too much. That's too much. And so by the time you're in your 40s, if you haven't burned out by then, at least you start to figure out, you know, what you're good right. at. You know yourself a lot more and you can get to the point where you can learn to say no. You can focus your energies on those things that add the most value. And I think that's where you really thrive. When you're operating on all cylinders, you're working in your sweet spot where your skills, you know, your talents can shine. That's where we want to be. That's you're not tired because you're not trying to prove anything to anybody. You've already proven yourself. Now you're just kind of adding value and, and starting to reap the benefits to shine. Yeah, to reap the benefits of all your labor, um, and and hopefully by then you've gotten to some level of success. And success is different for different people, but that's what you know thriving is when you're getting what you want out of life. And you know now. You know, I'm I'm over fifty. I'm fifty six, and you know, uh, I I talk about abiding, not as a negative, but there's a time when it's okay to slow down. It's okay to start focusing on giving back mm -hmm. and not uh, not necessarily just adding value by doing the job yourself, but adding value by giving back and and really re now this is when I reap the rewards of my labor. You know, I. You know, my reputation is solid. Right. I'm definitely not having to prove anybody. I definitely can now set a lot more boundaries than I did. You know, there's some things I just don't want to do now. And I'm okay <laughs> with that. There's, I don't feel the need to explain myself to people. I don't, you know, Isn't just, that the beauty of I the 50s? Mean, oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's, I'm with you on that. <laughs> if 50s is this good, you know, 60s can only be that oh, much better. So I can I'm, imagine. <laughs> So and I feel free. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. And these stages don't only apply in the workplace, but also in life in general, wouldn't you say? Exactly. Exactly. This as in life, the same thing works in your profession and vice versa. Right. 
So in each of these stages, then there's transition involved. In my opinion, mm-hmm. the striving seems to be the longest and most difficult of the areas. Yes. So uh, which one you would agree with that? Which area would you say would be the most difficult? And then is reaching the abiding stage the ultimate level, then you would say? Well, I think I think moving from striving to thriving is the most dramatic, like you like you said, it's the most challenging, it's the longest, and it's it's where we can get stuck. I, I think the goal is to get to thriving. And I think the more time that we spend there, the happier we are. But I'm I don't want people to feel like, you know, as I reach a retirement, my life isn't over. But I, I really wanted people to focus on how do you thrive in this life? And and now when I get to abiding, I can look back on that times and I can see and I have people writing me. I have people that I was a mentor writing me letters, thanking me for the time I invested in them. So abiding is a good That's period. What I look forward to. But I think thriving is <laughs> Yeah, but thriving is where you make a lot of impact. And so I don't, I don't want to sure. play that down. I, I really want you to really have some time where you really are working at your best, living your best life, being your best self. And that's what Masterful You is all about. That's why I coach people. How do you live, be your best? Oh, okay. You? Yes. So now then in that thriving stage, you mentioned four Ps. So then mm-hmm. what are those four Ps? Oh, good. You read my chapter. So the four P's that I talk about are maximizing potential, uh, particularly as Black women, but just in general. I think we have to remind ourselves that we're amazing. And, you know, so doing a good job, living up to your potential is up to you. I mean, a lot of people see it as something external where somebody else is evaluating how far you can go. But your potential is really just how well you perform. Uh, without any interference. And so if we increase our performance, if we do our best job to differentiate ourselves and work and then minimize interference, and interference can come in a lot of different ways. It can come from, you know, a bad marriage. It can come from working for a bully, which I had to do, Mm -hmm. you know, anything that's getting in your way, you know, it might be mental illness. So minimizing the things that are keeping you from living up to your potential. And and part of it is just your mindset. And that gets to the second P, which is your presence. And so being mindful of how you show up in the world, you know, confidence is a state of mind. And I think I stand up straighter. I, I speak with more authority and more confidence when I remember who I am and whose I am. And so when you know yourself, you can be more present and in the moment and more and, and be more confident in terms of how you show up in the world and uh, people respect you. And, and, and that's a part of thriving. And I then, have to say, you have quite a presence. <laughs> I, I can attest to that. When you walk in a room, you definitely do command the room. And Matt, you know what's funny? You don't know this. We're friends and, you know, peers, I consider us, yeah. but still I want to call you Miss Bell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you say that because when I was in the coaching program at Georgetown, you know, and you're trying to look for your niche and somebody else said that to me, you have a very strong presence. 
And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. What what do I do with that? And and the the instructor at the time, he said, Well, just sit with it for a while. And I have. I have sat with it for a long time now, because that was back in 2012. And I just kind of recognize where that comes from. And that's where I talk about it. If you know who you are and whose you are, you walk into a that's room right. and you don't have to apologize. And I can be confident at any seat in the table, you know, how in uh, corporate America, you're always like, there's these power positions, you know, it's at the head of the table or in ExxonMobil is at the center of the table. You know, there's like where the most senior person sits. I don't care. I could be on the back wall on the side table, but you know, my (laughs) presence will be known. Cause I figure if you invited me to this meeting, then you have a reason for me to be there. And so I'm not going to sit there like a shrinking violet. I mean, I'm going now, to... how does that translate for you then in, in a different culture? You know, it's funny because one, being in Qatar is so freeing because I, I do have to recognize that, you know, the gender thing, because there is a big difference in terms of being a woman in Qatar. But I never think about the fact that I'm black because one, they don't see that. that it, it's never top of mind. It's never an issue. So that's like a weight lifted off my shoulder. Isn't that but, wonderful? But I get a lot, once I recognize that my age and stage, so the fact that I have some gray hair gets me respect and engenders a lot of respect, even amongst mm-hmm. men. The fact that I come from the U.S. and from a major company, international oil company, that also gives me respect. So people listen to me. Sure. And if I'm also confident, and they're confident, <laughs> you know, that's a win-win. <laughs> that's a win-win. So I, I haven't had any issues in Qatar with being heard. I, I'm just myself. And because I'm comfortable in my own skin, you know, it, it's worked out for me. And that's why I've been there so long. Because I came for three years and my family keeps saying, are you ever going to come home? You know, but um, <laughs> it's been a good fit because I, I feel like I'm adding value. And I feel like my uh, my contributions are appreciated. So that's a win-win. Definitely. Yes. Because we don't always have that feeling in corporate America. Yeah, exactly. So I talked a little bit about potential presence and then the other two were passion and purpose. And so having some passion, doing things that you love to do, finding a way to use your gifts and skills that gives you energy and it makes you more positive in life especially when you're working in your purpose, you have to know that you weren't just put here to take up space and, and breathe in air. And I feel like, you know, until you figure out what your purpose is, you know, you're still here. And so God hasn't taken me away yet. And so I'm still operating because I have a, a purpose for being as if I have a purpose for being here. And that is to lead and I'm, I consider myself a servant leader. I'm not one who thinks that a leader is a, a boss or somebody that's you know lording it over somebody. It's about serving others. And I use opportunities to to teach, to to counsel. That's what it means for me to lead, to take somebody, to show them a better way than where we are now. You're leading them into a vision of something better, a better tomorrow. And right. so as long as you're living in your purpose, you're doing it with passion. You have a good presence because you know who you are and you are working your best because maximizing your potential. I think that's thriving. It is thriving. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you break down in, in your chapter thrive even further because you have it as an acronym, but I'm going to leave that for the readers. Yeah. To, leave to them something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so of all of the scripts that you have flipped, which do you think was the most challenging for you? And then maybe also the most rewarding and maybe how you overcame some of those challenges. I think if I look back over my life and my career, the biggest script that I flipped was when I was working for someone who I considered a bully. And I've always been a little bit of a people pleaser, you know, get along. I I mean, I really never had any problems with people. I've always, I never really had any enemies. And so it was really a struggle for me, but I think God puts you in places for a reason. And I really needed to learn I learned a lot of lessons doing that, but I learned submission. Right. I learned how to stand up for myself, self-advocate. And that took a, I worked for this person for four years. So it was, it was a struggle every day, but at the end of it, I think I was much stronger and oh, wow. as, as somebody I mean, I I learned to pray. (laughs) I learned a whole lot of uh, uh, things about what I could endure. But the main thing I learned was nobody can ride your back if you don't bend over. So, I mean, I just started to stand up for myself and just say, you know, I'm not going to be treated any kind of way. And that was empowering, you know, learning how to stand up for yourself. It was just not something I, I come from a family that's just very conflict avoid avoided. We don't, we just didn't deal with problems, and I didn't, I didn't really have a way of dealing with conflict that well. I didn't have those skills, um, so that was the biggest one: learning to stand up for myself. And from that point, you know, I felt like I could handle anything. All right. So, what advice do you have then for those looking to flip the script? Or what you actually called in your book, Pivot Points. I like that term as well. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is to, instead of wallowing when you're in a, in a situation where you're, you know, you're not feeling like you're getting everything, you're in a, a low point in life, is to not get comfortable there, but to look for what are the lessons to be learned, uh, to recognize that this is this is God trying to tell you something. This is an opportunity to pivot. This is an opportunity to change and not be afraid of it, but lean into it. Just really understand, okay, okay, we're we're going someplace else here. What do I take from this? How do I make this make me better? I think if you can do that, then flipping the script will always work out in your favor. I fully agree. And sometimes those are things that are self-initiated where you want to make change and something sometimes mm-hmm. they're forced upon you. So, exactly. and it's hard to see, you know, if you've been laid off of a job, how to think of the positive things from that. But I tell you now, when I think back at the times when I've gotten laid off and it forced me to make a change, then I thank God for that now because yeah. it really ha- it's put me where I am. And uh, without that nudge, then you might just get complacent with where you are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what's next for you? 
What's next for me is I'm looking towards retirement, which doesn't mean that I'm going to stop working. It's just that I want to work on my own terms. I still have a lot of life to live, so I'm looking forward to it. I want to write. I want to counsel. I might want to, I'm working on my PhD, so I yeah. might end up teaching. I have lots of lots of ideas, and they'll start you know gelling soon. I have an, at least another year in Qatar, and um, then I'll start thinking about what's my next chapter. All right. Fabulous. Good. Well, I know that you mentioned before your masterful you coaching. So is that something that you are going to continue and develop in the future? Yes, I still take on coaching clients. I try not to have more than two at a time because I am working and, and going to school, but I am available. I coach virtually, so it doesn't matter where you are in the world. I can still work with you. Usually a co- coaching engagement lasts somewhere between six to 12 weeks, depending on what the, the goal is. But coaching is something I plan to continue to do. I like working with people one-on-one. Good to know. So I will let you guys know then to reach Val. You can email her at masterfulyoucoach at gmail.com to be able to get some more information on her coaching availability. And also the website for your book is www.the9percent.com. And all of your books are also available at Amazon.com as well, correct? That's correct. Just type in my name, Valerie Edmonds, and you'll find all E-D-M-O-N-D-S. of them. E-D-M-O-N-D-S. You will find all of her information as well in my show notes. So thank you very much, Val. This was very informative, and I appreciate you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks, Michelle. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flipping the Script. If you like what you have heard, please make sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Also, I would appreciate it if you would write a review and share with your friends. And I want to hear from you. Feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you thought about this week's episode or to suggest any future topics that you would like for me to explore. Or you can just stop by and say hello. You can reach me at flippingthescript.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Flippin' the Script. Want to continue the discussion? I also have a private group for ladies only on Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. Bye for now. With Flippin' the Script, so you'll find your way to help you embrace any trials you face.